I'm really glad when I can help educate my friends and family about the trans community when they come to me with their questions. But sometimes I just wish I could have a nice dinner or a quiet car ride home, too. If I say it's not my job to educate you, then whose job is it? I was first published when I was 19. And the first time I was a bestseller, I was 21, 22. I ran for Congress in Dutchess County, and I came with 20% of winning it. There's nothing that can destroy a friendship as much as sex. Way Out, the international LGBTQ radio magazine. I'm Lucia Chappelle. Uganda's smug, shuttered by government catch-22, queer youth feel the pressure to educate, and the life and times of Gore Vidal. Those stories and more this week because you've chosen This Way Out. I'm Marco Snahera. And I'm Melanie Keller. With NewsRap, a summary of some of the news in or affecting LGBTQ communities around the world for the week ending August 13th, 2022. Sexual Minorities Uganda is out of business by order of the government. SMUG has been the leading queer advocacy group in one of the world's most anti-queer countries since 2004. It's been trapped in a Ugandan Catch-22 with the Registrar of Companies for a decade. The registrar rejected Sexual Minorities Uganda's non-governmental organization application because of its undesirable name. The disqualification also said that SMUG seeks to advocate for the rights and well-being of lesbians, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer persons, which persons are engaged in activities labeled criminal acts under the penal code. Smug lost a challenge to that 2012 NGO registration rejection in a lower court. It's still waiting for an appeals court ruling, but on August 6, the nation's NGO bureau ordered Smug to cease operations with immediate effect. Why? Because it's not a registered NGO. Longtime leader Dr. Frank Mugisha has been running the group as an association instead of an NGO to stay under the radar. As he told the Associated Press, This means that the life-saving work we do is on hold. We can't protect and support vulnerable LGBT people. The background, of course, is homophobia and transphobia. Mugisha told the BBC, The politicians are using the LGBT community as a scapegoat to gain support and win votes, and it is fueling homophobia. The East African nation's president, Yaweri Museveni, has led Uganda's homophobic charge since coming to power in 1986. He has a history of calling queer people born abnormal and disgusting. Consensual adult same-gender sex is an unnatural offense under Ugandan law, punishable by up to life in prison. Defiant smug members vowed in a tweet, We shall be back. The Florida Agency for Healthcare Administration has issued new regulations denying Medicaid coverage to transgender young people for gender-affirming care. Medicaid is a federal and state program that helps with the health care costs for people with limited income. Coverage will now be denied for puberty blockers, hormones and hormone antagonists, and other procedures that alter primary or secondary sexual characteristics. 
trans adults seeking those treatments or gender reassignment surgery are also out of luck. The new regulations follow last week's recommendations from the state's Board of Medicine to ban gender-affirming care for trans minors. Dr. Joseph A. Ladapo is Florida's state surgeon general, hastily appointed by Republican Governor Ron DeSantis to support his deadly anti-mask, anti-vaccine approach to the COVID pandemic. Outside the medical board meeting on gender-affirming care, Ladapo told Miami's WPLG-TV, I'm grateful that the governor has decided that it was important to take a stand here. Once they're adults, they can do what they want, but minors simply do not have the mental capacity to make these life-altering decisions. Presidential wannabe DeSantis has been building his political fortunes on the backs of LGBTQ people. He pushed Florida's infamous don't say gay law through the Republican-dominated legislature, then went after the Walt Disney Company for denouncing it. DeSantis gleefully supported state laws banning trans girls and women from competing in school athletic events and forcing trans people to use sex-segregated public facilities based on their birth certificate gender. Democratic State Representative Anna Eskamani condemned the impetus behind the new Medicaid restrictions. To just vote to move forward with this clearly politically motivated transphobic rule is a slap in the face to every Floridian here. Jeanette Jennings is the mother of a trans kid. She talked about the dire consequences of the new rules. When you say to them, you can't wear this, you can't wear that, there's no doctors that'll treat you, they become suicidal. Florida's new regulations denying Medicaid support for gender-affirming health care are set to take effect on August 21st. A number of queer and progressive legal advocates are vowing to challenge them in court. An eight-year-old transgender girl and her parents are going to fight a Tennessee bathroom bill in federal court. The law prevents trans public school students and staff from using sex-segregated campus restrooms and changing rooms according to their gender identity. A private law firm and the Human Rights Campaign filed the lawsuit on August 4th on behalf of parents A.H. and E.H. and daughter D.H. It rejects the assertion by D.H.'s elementary school that it provided her with the legally required reasonable alternatives to using the girls' facilities. Instead, the lawsuit describes D.H. having to clean those restrooms covered in human waste before using them. Because of the law, D.H. was forced to out herself as transgender in front of other students and janitorial staff. The filing also claims that D.H. has suffered serious bullying from some of her classmates. A previous challenge to the 2021 law was dismissed when the plaintiffs moved out of state. A U.S. federal court has already struck down another Tennessee bathroom law. It required businesses to post warning signs if trans people were allowed to use the restroom based on their gender identity. Queer people and their allies in Montreal spontaneously marched with LGBTQ pride on August 7th after the official parade was abruptly canceled. Organizers claimed that they were forced to cancel the event at the last minute because they were unable to recruit enough security people. But hundreds of rainbow flag-waving people hit the streets anyway. Montreal Pride Executive Director Simon Gamache told reporters that his group isn't immune from human resources issues. Police officials, however, said in a statement, Like every year, we were ready to oversee the event. 
Indeed, insistent pride-goers gave the cooperative police officers an event to oversee, clearing a path for an impromptu march through downtown Montreal. Several marchers who spoke to the Montreal Gazette recalled that pride began as a protest. Beatrice Pichet said, There's a feeling of that still here today. People are a bit frustrated about corporate pride and what that means in the queer community. So for people to be out here marching today, despite the parade officially being canceled, it means a lot. Mayor Valerie Plant was also shocked by the last-minute cancellation of the official march. She told a news conference, I had on my pink suit. I was looking forward to walking with Montrealers in the most important LGBTQAI2 plus parade in North America. Montreal Pride's Gamache said that a replacement event of some sort might be organized. Finally, a Southwest Louisiana preschooler has been barred from entering kindergarten by her Christian elementary school. When five-year-old Zoe's parents died, her biological aunt Emily Parker and Emily's wife Jennifer formally adopted her. Now, officials at De Quincey, Louisiana's Bible Baptist Academy say that Zoe cannot return to the school. The couple explained to Late Charles, Louisiana TV station KPLC. On the 3rd, we adopted her. And we went to open house. We got the uniforms. We got the fees. And the pastor started talking about gender identification and that they teach the words of the Lord and marriage is between a man and a woman. And because of our lifestyle choices, they didn't think this was a good fit. She lost her father, she lost her mother, and now she's losing her school, which she loves very much. After Zoe's story became public, a number of other Christian schools in the area reached out to the Parkers. Jennifer said, The whole community of De Quincey has showed us what it is to be a good Christian and to not preach hate like this. They are the reason why we kept faith. Zoe will now be going to the Hamilton Christian School in Lake Charles. And since God works in mysterious ways, her mom says her new school is a little closer, and it's a new opportunity for Zoe to make new friends. That's News Wrap, global queer news with attitude for the week ending August 13th, 2022. Follow the news in your area and around the world. An informed community is a strong community. News Wrap is written by Greg Gordon, edited by Lucia Chappelle, produced by Brian DeShazer, and brought to you by you. Thank you. Help keep us in ears around the world at thiswayout.org, where you can also read the text of this newscast and much more. And you can read the transcript and listen to News Wrap each week by subscribing to our This Way Out radio channel on YouTube. For This Way Out, I'm Marcos Najera. Stay healthy. And I'm Melanie Keller. Stay safe. Jimmy Baldwin sounded exactly like Betty Davis suffering in one of her movies. You know, she came to the White House speaking six or seven languages. Roosevelt couldn't do restaurant French. How do you want to be remembered? He remembered them, so we'll return the favor later in the program.
Does just being queer make you an expert on all LGBTQ plus issues from A to Z? And does that make it your job to teach every ally the whole alphabet? The Outcasting Overtime crew is coming to your rescue. This is Outcasting Overtime from Media for the Public Good, creator of Public Radio's LGBTQ youth programs. Hi, I'm Declan, an Outcasting youth broadcaster. I'm 13. I don't know I'm trans yet, but I guess my friends think I'm the most knowledgeable person in the group on gender stuff. One of them asks me a question about pronouns and how to refer to trans people. I answer as best I can, and they understand. Fast forward. I'm 14 now, I've come out to my parents as a trans guy, and they try their best to call me Declan, he him pronouns. My mom asks me a question about names, and why a lot of trans people decide to change theirs. I'm in the middle of dinner, but I explain it to her, and she seems to understand. Fast forward again. I've just turned 15. I open my phone, and my friends are having an argument online about trans people. They tell me I need to weigh in to see who's right. I have stuff to do, but I take the time to explain it to them. It takes a while. They decide to just end the conversation without coming to an answer. I don't know if they understand. Fast forward again. It's a couple months later. I'm still 15, and I'm in the car with my mom. It's very late. The car is quiet until she asks me a question, something about the side effects of trans people going on hormone replacement therapy. I'm half asleep, but I decide to answer. I give her the full detailed rundown the whole ride home. A week later, she asks me the same exact question. She didn't understand the first time. I'm 16 now, and for as long as I've been out about my identity as a trans guy, I've been educating people. And I'm getting a little tired of it. So when I first came across the phrase, it's not my job to educate you, it really resonated with me. You may have heard it before. It's a phrase that's definitely sparked a lot of debate and even outrage over the past few years. And that makes sense. It's provocative, blunt, and very straight to the point. It's also pretty controversial, both inside and out of progressive circles. First, let's establish what it is. In a nutshell, this phrase, it's not my job to educate you, is usually used in response to questions posed to marginalized people by those who don't share their identities. It tends to put the person being asked the question on a pedestal, like they're the authoritative source on everything related to their identity. Think of any of the situations I mentioned at the beginning. It didn't really matter how much I knew about the questions or whether I wasn't in the mood to answer. Since I was trans, that made me the automatic authority on all their questions related to trans people. I could have responded to any of those questions by saying something like, Hey, I'm glad you're open to learning about these sorts of things, and I'm really happy you came to me with your questions, but it's not really my job to educate you. Maybe I would direct them towards a book or a good online resource, but at the end of the day, I'm taking myself out of the equation because I'm not obligated to answer. And when people ask these questions, they don't have to be coming from a place of malice. It's usually the opposite, actually. Most of the time, it's just people trying to educate themselves a bit more on something. I'm certain my friends and my mom were coming from a totally compassionate place. These were people who had a genuine desire to know more about the trans community. But sometimes it can still be pretty taxing to always be the go-to person whenever it comes to educating someone. But I don't just get asked about things relevant to my own identity and experiences as a trans male. Rather, I feel like people tend to come to me about any questions remotely trans-related. So I get asked all the time by friends and family about issues related to non-binary people, gender-fluid people, they-them pronouns, the list goes on. 
I get asked about trans surgeries all the time, even though that's something I've never experienced. People tend to assume that just because I belong to a certain broad community, I know everything about it, or that I can speak for the voices of people I actually share very little in common with except our shared label. And even when it comes to things I am qualified to speak on, it can be pretty tiring. Whether it's at the dinner table or in the car or after a long day of school or work, marginalized people are expected to provide the answers to any question at a moment's notice. So in that sense, I do think a response like, it's not my job to educate you, can really relieve some of that pressure. Basically telling someone, hey, just because I'm trans, gay, non-white, disabled, so on and so forth, doesn't mean I'm always the go-to authority on any questions you have related to that specific identity. We don't want to discourage people from educating themselves, but when that education comes at the expense of treating the marginalized people in your life like walking encyclopedias, maybe there are better ways you can be doing some of that self-educating. But on the flip side, I'm also a little conflicted about the phrase. There's obviously a pretty glaring problem that you've probably picked up on already. If I say it's not my job to educate you, then whose job is it? The library? Well, books take a while to get published and language evolves quickly. So even if the book you're reading came out as recently as five years ago, there's still a good chance it might include some outdated science or terminology, and it probably won't be telling you the whole modern story. What about the internet? Well, there's a lot of content to parse through, and a lot of it is outdated, inaccurate, or plain out anti-LGBTQ. It only takes a few clicks to fall down a rabbit hole of misinformation. What if you ask someone who doesn't share that identity? Of course, people can be aware of issues surrounding communities they don't belong to, but if you try to learn about trans issues from people who aren't trans, for instance, you could get inaccurate information. There's almost no way you could be getting the whole story. So it sometimes seems like the best option for me is to just answer people's questions. When my friends and family ask me questions about the trans community, even if I'm not really in the mood to have that conversation, I always answer because I don't want them to get turned off from approaching trans people to have open discussions about the issues we face. I don't want them going to sources that might contain a lot of bigotry and misinformation, and maybe even getting radicalized into believing some pretty nasty anti-LGBTQ propaganda just because I didn't want to answer their questions. In an ideal world, I wouldn't have to be a walking encyclopedia. I wouldn't be bombarded by uncomfortable questions about my identity 24-7. But... I know that the alternative is often misinformation and even downright bigotry, so I personally choose to engage in these conversations. So I think there's a genuine benefit to marginalized people being the ones to educate others. I'm really glad when I can help educate my friends and family about the trans community when they come to me with their questions. But sometimes I just wish I could have a nice dinner or a quiet car ride home too. Thanks for listening to Outcasting Overtime from Outcasting Media, creator of Public Radio's LGBTQ youth programs. Outcasting Media is a production of media for the public good based in New York. Our executive producer is Mark Sofis. Visit us at outcastingmedia.org to get information about outcasting, watch outcasting videos, access our social media links, and listen to outcasting and related content. You can also find Outcasting wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Declan. Thanks, and thanks for listening. This Way Out is supported in part by contributions from our listeners. Some give a little each month. Some make a larger annual contribution. 
More information and a link to give are online at thiswayout.org. Thank you. for another This Way Out Rewind. 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 The book that couldn't be written is now the motion picture that couldn't be made. Myra Breckenridge. I'll be right with you, boys. Get your resumes out. What's your name, honey? I'm Myra Breckenridge. You realize once you cut it off, it won't go back. I'm the widow of your late nephew, Myron. Everything you've heard about Myra Breckenridge is true. Everything you've heard about Myra Breckenridge is true, including the fact that the author of the original novel thought the 1968 film version of the tale of a transgender Hollywood drama coach was an awful joke. Homosexuality was a key theme in the fiction of Gore Vidal, but although books like The City and the Pillar were scandalously groundbreaking, his attitude toward his own gay relationships did not evolve much with the times. As one of the most prolific writers of the 20th century, the eloquent and acerbic Vidal was better known in later years for his insightful historical works and searing political essays, so one has to wonder what he would have thought of the events of today. Sadly, we lost Gore Vidal's voice ten years ago. To honor the anniversary of his passing, here are excerpts from a 2008 interview with Democracy Now!'s Amy Goodman. I was first published when I was 19. And the first time I was a bestseller, I was 21, 22. I thought by the time I'm old, this place is going to be greatly improved. Not just because I was around, but I was going to contribute to it. Then I saw how the New York Times had locked in the little tight world of New York publishing, uh, which they really did to publish each other's books. You know, and, uh, the results have not been very good. So here we are, cut off from Europe, basically, by the World War II. And then the post-war period was kind of interesting, because a lot of us went abroad and stayed there. For a time, and um, got to understand other cultures. And I saw, I saw in many cases, Jimmy Baldwin. He became a Frenchman. Surprising, surprising accent, but uh, he was sharp as a tack. Did you know him? Yes, very well. What are your memories of him? He had two voices. One, he sounded exactly like Betty Davis, suffering in one of her movies. And the other one was, call me Ishmael, that was the prophet's voice. So he was a bit of a contradiction. Did you know Eleanor Roosevelt? Very well. Can you talk about her? What do you want to know about her? Um, well, tell us about her personality. What did she stand for? What effect did she have on FDR? What was their relationship? Well, it was irritable. They didn't really like each other. She admired him. And he didn't admire her, which is stupid. She was much more intelligent than he. How did you meet her? 
I lived in Dutchess County for years. I ran for Congress in Dutchess County. She launched my campaign up there. And I came with, I don't know what it was, 20% of winning it. And we became great friends during that. This is the campaign of 1960. Do you think if Eleanor Roosevelt lived in a different age like today, she could be running for president? I'd propose her for Dalai Lama, just to keep her in office as long as possible. What were her values? What did she stand for? Well, they were more human than American. You know, she came to the White House speaking six or seven languages. Roosevelt couldn't do restaurant French. And she was the brain. And she was the one who really cared about those who had been left with all of her hull houses and so on, those left outside of the, uh, of the ordinary stream of life. And she was very active on that front. Oh, she was extraordinarily admirable. As we sat in Gore Vidal's living room, I asked him about his long-term companion and their home, which they shared for decades in Hollywood Hills. Well, there were a batch of these houses were, was built around, were built around 1920 in an area called the Outpost. This is the Outpost. That was sort of a suitable place for me to be living. When did you meet Howard? 1950. 1950. Where? Manhattan. He was in advertising. His name was Auster, just like Fred Astaire's. And he was turned down by every advertising agency, and uh, he, he graduated from NYU because it was a Jewish name. Can you imagine? He was rejected because he was Jewish. And I said, well, this is silly. I said, change the R to an N. So he became Howard Austin, which has caused a lot of confusion to bi biographers. But immediately he was hired at Doyle, Dane, and Vernbeck, a very good house. Amazing to think how recently all that was still in effect. So you were with him for over half a century. Yeah. What is the secret to a long relationship? Oh, no sex. You can't tell Americans that because they think everything is sex because they're so beautiful and vital and, you know, full of joy, which they want to spread around. And I've always thought that uh, there's nothing that can destroy a friendship as much as sex. So would you rather have a friend or you, would just, you can always get sex out there in the dark? How do you live past your partner? How does your life change? Well, you go into a room and it's empty. One notices that. That's about it. Do you feel like you're continuing the conversation with him? A bit, yeah. How do you want to be remembered? I don't give a goddamn. Author, playwright, politician, essayist Gore Vidal died in Los Angeles on July 31, 2012, at the age of 86. He was interviewed in 2008 by Amy Goodman of Democracy Now!
Thanks for discovering This Way Out, brought to you by the nonprofit Overnight Productions. Some program material this week came from Marcos Nahara and Melanie Keller, produced by Brian DeShazer, and from Outcaster Declan, produced by Mark Sofas. Thanks also to Amy Goodman and Democracy Now! Sam Cook performed some of the music you heard, and Kim Wilson composed and performed our theme music. This Way Out thanks the Kicking Assets Fund of the Tides Foundation, the Ivana Foundation, and donors Margaret Roberts and Richard Merck and Brad Payton of Silicon Valley. Listener donors make this program possible. Thank you. Look for This Way Out Radio on social media, email info at thiswayout.org, or write to us at P.O. Box 1065, Los Angeles, California, 90078, USA. For coordinating producer Greg Gordon and all of us at This Way Out, I'm Lucia Chappelle. Thanks for listening online at thiswayout.org and on 5UV, Adelaide, South Australia, WOOL, Bellows Falls, Vermont, KCEI, Taos, New Mexico, and a wide array of community terrestrial and internet stations around the world, including this one. Stay healthy, stay safe, and stay tuned, y'all.